Hey, welcome to Book by Book. I wonder if you're on your own, or maybe you're in a small study group, or perhaps you're in a big church looking at the big screen, however it is, or whether you're watching on TV, we're delighted to be with you. Paul Blackham here, my colleague, and also Nancy Guthrie, Bible teacher and author from Nashville, Tennessee, myself, Richard Buse, and we're here in the London's Dockland area, which we're very pleased to be in, in this spectacular part of the world. As we're doing book by book, we're doing, of course, the first book of Samuel. Stay, stay with us, open your Bible if you can. And um, we're going to look at this theme today in our study number three of the Lord rejecting King Saul as king. And uh, this is chapters 11 to 15 of 1 Samuel. So why don't I read actually, following the bit where Saul's false caricature of spirituality in chapter 15, and Samuel then says this, Verse, verse 22, Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And that really is the theme verse of our study today. But let's come back to chapter 11 now. What was the key, do you think, to Saul's success here against the Ammonites? I think we're looking at verse 6, uh, are we not, Nancy? Well, you read there that uh, obedience is key and listening to God's word is key. And the beautiful thing is at the beginning of Saul's kingship, we see him doing just yeah. that. And so if we were going along and we didn't know we were going to come to that place in the story, we might feel hopeful yes. about Saul's, uh, Saul's kingship it because here the Ammonites, an enemy, have attacked this uh, city of Jabez-Gilead and they're crying out to be saved. They say in verse 3, if no one comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to them. And yet what happens, verse 6, the Spirit of God comes down on Saul in power and he goes and he saves God's people. And what's wonderful about it is uh, we see that at the beginning, Saul really does understand that the battle is the Lord's, even though he's the one that's going out before mm -hmm. them. Because in verse 13, we read that Saul says, no one shall be put to death today for this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. And so we have hope for his kingship here at the very beginning because Saul sees that the Lord is, at fact, at work. He sees God's power to save. Yes, and so you get, in a way, spiritual Saul, generous Saul as well in that uh, those particular verses. But as we move on, chapter 12, Samuel here tells the long story of Israel in his, what is really his farewell speech. Mm. Actually, what's the point of the story with all, all, the, all these events? Well, I think Samuel's amazing because he's trying to do everything he can to set Saul up for success. And he's really saying, right, I'll step aside now. And here he is, Saul. And he, you know, spirit filled and he's just rescued. OK. And then he tells the story, really making that very point that the Lord has rescued Israel. So Samuel in his speech is really saying, you know, who's the real rescuer, don't you? It is always the Lord. And then he goes and look at verse seven, where he says, um, 
Uh, now, stand here. I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. So that's his speech. He's really saying, you know, it's always been the Lord, don't you? Whether with Moses and Aaron in verse eight or the judges in verses nine to 11, or even Saul himself here in verse 12, he says, even Saul, he's just done this, but you know it was the Lord, don't you? As Saul said. So all that Samuel's trying to do is set everything up as well as he can to say, look, never lose sight of who's the real king above, who you must trust in, who's the real rescuer. And that don't let anything distract you from that. And he's preaching to the people, but I guess he's also preaching to Saul to say, don't you forget this either, Saul. You're only here. The only reason that was successful was because of the Lord. And Samuel does have the big picture again, which is so vital, really, in the whole... Th- well, when we think of some of the events that are happening in the Christian world of today and in our modern world, we could easily think, be very, very pessimistic. But to get the big picture seems to be extremely important. So as we, how do we analyse Saul's problems? I mean, because they are there, spiritual disobedience in chapter 13, a poor judgment of uh, 14. Uh, how do we analyse those problems? Well, you know, when Saul was first anointed king, he was given the instruction that he was supposed to go deal with the Philistines. Mm. And we see he goes home mm. and he doesn't do it. Uh, but of course, the Philistines are a significant enemy for the people of God. And so once again, he is uh, supposed to go now and he's going to go deal with the Philistines. And But there's a certain way that Israel goes about warfare. And it's not like the world because in, sin, in a sense, warfare is more like a worship service mm. because the Lord is the one doing the, the, the fighting for them. And so before he goes, he's supposed to wait for the prophet to come mm. and to offer a sacrifice for them to go. So he's waiting and Samuel isn't showing up and he's getting, he's getting so impatient and, you know, his people are getting, beginning to slip away. And so we read in the middle of chapter 13 in verse nine, that Saul offers the burnt offering. And, uh, you know, like so many things in this story of first Samuel, I think there are parts that are meant to a bit tickle us. And because we read in verse 10, just as he finishes yes. making the offering, yeah, I know. what happens? But Samuel arrives and he goes out to greet him and he's, what have you done? Yeah. And then look at the end of verse 12. He says, you know, we were waiting around here. I, I was getting worried. He says, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And of course, this is tragic that he would step out of his role of anointed king and presume the role of a, of a priest, or in this case, this prophet Samuel, that he is the one who is to offer the, um, the, the burnt offering. And so Samuel says to him, you've not kept the command of the Lord. And so now your kingdom is not going to endure. And then is this to emphasize the key problem? He says again at the end of verse 14, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Yeah. And so we realize if, if we were just looking at this with human eyes, we would see, well, it kind of makes sense that Saul might go ahead and offer this offering. Yeah. I mean, things are not looking bleak. Yeah. But we discover we're, we're not supposed to operate based on our experience or human mm. instinct or even common sense. Yeah. Yeah. but instead by the instruction of the word of the Lord. And that's ultimately the problem with, yeah. with Saul as yeah. a king. 
he doesn't obey the word of the Lord. Yeah. And so we're meant to look toward one mm. and hope for a king yeah. who will come, yeah. who actually will obey the word so, of the Lord. And it's even like when he gives that command where he says, no one's allowed to eat anything in the next battle in chapter 14. Why does he say that? Terrible. The Lord hasn't told him to say that. He's just rash and impatient again. He goes, and he tries to make a big gesture of spirituality or something. Uh-huh. And it's like, but the Lord didn't tell you to do that. That's just foolish. And now they can't fight properly. And yeah. You know, Paul, in our Church of England, because uh, we're Anglicans, uh, Anglican evangelicals, but we have, there's a special prayer appointed for Pentecost Sunday in the old prayer book. It only asks for one thing. It asks for a right judgment in all things. But when I was young, I used to think, that's pathetic on Pentecost Sunday, the day of power. No. To ask for a right judgment, actually, there's nothing more important. Mm. To get it right time after time after time, every time you make hundreds of decisions, mm. the person who can get it right is brilliantly mm. in touch. And so that's what Paul Saul was actually missing. Uh, as we, yes, yeah, so these problems. Then the famous story of Jonathan. Yeah. When we come on to chapter 14, that reminds us of Israel's, well, do you think true king? Well, I think that's what's so great about Jonathan, because it's Saul's son. And then Saul's sort of not really relying on the spirit for a right judgment. But Jonathan does. And I love the fact that he's there and he's like, well, the Lord's told us to go and destroy the Philistines. I'm going for it. <laughs> and you just think, whoa, but hang on. There's only a little, you're like a young man and you've got this younger armor bearer. And he's like, that's all right. We can do it. The Lord's going to give us the victory. And then they just go up a hill and charge off and get on with it. And I love that because it's captured. How is he able to even dare to do such a thing? He's hugely outnumbered. Well, it's because you're thinking, aren't you, like, Numbers 13.30, where Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it, because the Lord's given them to us. So there's Jonathan. He's like, nah, the Lord's the one who wins this. If we're filled with his spirit and he's gone ahead of us, we can win. And off he goes, filled with the spirit, trusting in the Lord. No enemy can stand against the church. Not then, not now. And that sort of courage that if the Lord has sent us to do something, even now, we should have something of Jonathan's spirit. Let's do that. And then don't worry. No, because we might look at it from the human point of view and say, oh, we can't. It's impossible. We need lots more money or we need lot. No, if the Lord is with us, he will give us the victory. Let's trust him. I love that about Jonathan. Yeah, we do, we do love it. And actually, as we move on uh, here in the next uh, chapter, and chapter, let's have a look, yes, um, 15. <clears throat> and where we started with that, verse 22, where Samuel replies to this, well, this false spirituality mm. of souls, does the Lord delight in burnt offering, etc., etc." What is the final straw for King Saul as we look at that great speech of Samuel's? Well, Saul is, is sent to deal with the Amalekites. And we have to remember they're this ancient enemy who they were the first ones to attack the people of God when they came out of Egypt. And so long before God had said they are to be completely destroyed, mm. uh, they're to be devoted to destruction. And so Saul is sent to lead God's people to accomplish that work. But what happens is, yes, they do defeat, but they don't defeat them devote them completely to destruction. He, he allows his men to, to bring the best, so yeah. the, some of the good stuff back, right? And even the king himself. 
And yes, then Saul comes up with a religious way mm. to make this okay. Oh, but you see, Lord, we wanted to offer it to you. So rather than obeying what you've told us mm. specifically to do, he kind of religiousizes his disobedience. Yeah. Um, he makes it sound like it's going to actually be something good for God when actually in rejecting God's word, he has rejected God himself. And, you know, it's really an assault on God's character to think that because he suggests he's going to offer this as a sacrifice, that somehow God's going to be bought off by that or that God somehow really likes our religious activity and that that could mean something more than just obeying God's word. Mm. This is what the Lord loves when we obey his word which mm. is what Saul has not done. He mm. has, we read in verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Yeah, 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 indeed. You know, there's a lot of death here in mm. Samuel and, and blood. Mm. I mean, even there in verse what, uh, 32 of uh, chapter 15, Samuel says, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And... Uh, as you look at that, the violent death of Agag, yeah, wouldn't you think that's the kind of story that makes some people a bit nervous yeah. about the Old Testament? Yeah, with that destruction of the Amalekites and then this book of Joshua and all those things. And I think the thing is, is that the Lord really, the, the Amalekites said, we are against the church, God's people. We're against that yeah. and, the, and what the Lord said. Well, the thing is, Anyone who does that, there is a day coming of judgment where there is absolute total destruction on the whole world that sets itself against Christ and his people. So when we see these pictures, we go, oh, I, I, I find that a bit distasteful. That's too much. Well, just hang on a minute before we go like trying to that is presenting us. It's a kindness that God says, I want you to see beforehand what it will be like on that day, that if you set yourself against me and my people, there is no escape, there's nowhere to go. You will be all destroyed. Now, of course, that's why we do, when we read the book of Joshua say, we like the Gibeonites, they've been de devoted to destruction, but they come and say, we want to join you, we want to join you. And then Lord's like, that's great, in you come and forgive you. So even when there's that, even when the Lord says, you're totally devoted to destruction, they could even then come and beg for mercy and be forgiven. But it's all these stories, we mustn't run away from them we need to face them squarely and say the Lord is giving us fair warning that is how it will be on the on the day the divine Joshua comes with all the hosts of heaven and he will destroy everybody who's set against him they are important warning stories so we're really saying that in this life not you know things are reversible yeah uh, when they are very very bad we haven't reached the final end yet and when I think about that and about the end of, of Saul of course, there are huge warnings there, but there must be people actually in your situation who are going through very difficult times, maybe with their own church, when everything seems to have gone down, 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 or in some situation where it looks irreversible. No, it is reversible. I think of my, my uncle Gordon, Gordon Guinness. He's one of these great missionary families, of course. And Gordon Guinness was, uh, he'd retired from being a minister when he heard of a church that was empty and the authorities were saying, we're going to just close this church down, it's gone. And Gordon said, I'll take it on, if you wouldn't mind. And in his retirement, he took it on, preached, the word was preached, 
and congregation grew. Now it's 300 strong at least and still growing. And it's a great bastion. And other people have followed Uncle Gordon. All things are reversible. Sometimes you only need one person of prayer and insight who can see the big picture. Come back next time, won't you, and join us.